Well, this morning we'll spend some time considering this letter to the church in Philadelphia. And this church, of course, is one of seven that the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ sends letters to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And I'm sure, as we will know, these seven churches give us a complete picture of the state of the church until our Lord returns. And as the Lord Jesus unfolds in these seven churches, the the kinds of churches that there will be in this world, there is much to concern us. There is rich, lukewarm Laodicea. There is loveless Ephesus. There is heresy in these seven churches. There is sexual immorality in seven churches. There's much that might cause us to be concerned about the church until our Lord returns. But there's also great hope in these seven letters. And in the church that we'll be looking at this morning, the church in Philadelphia, we see the church of Jesus Christ as she should be. We see a church that is as a bride adorned for her husband. We see here a church that is witnessing, a church that is persevering in the face of opposition. We see a church that in weakness is relying on the Lord Jesus Christ for everything. And this church here receives not one word of criticism, only loving praise and encouragement from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we turn to this church, I hope we will find it a joy and an encouragement to be reminded of what the church of Jesus Christ on earth by his grace can be. And I'm sure many of you will know the words of Robert Murray McShane. He often prayed, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. And this church in Philadelphia, I think, can inspire a similar prayer in our hearts. For your glory, Lord, make us as Philadelphian a church as a church of redeemed sinners can be. So with that in our minds, let's turn to the letter itself. And it has the same pattern as really all of the the seven letters do. There's an introduction. There's a diagnosis of the spiritual condition of the church. There's an exhortation to action. And then there's closing encouragement and promises. And we'll just work through these different sections of the letter this morning. And so first, we have the introduction to the letter. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. Now, Philadelphia itself is an interesting 
city with an interesting history. It was founded around 200 BC. It received its name of Philadelphia or brotherly love because of the bonds of family love between the first two rulers of the city who were brothers. And there's much that we could say about Philadelphia as a place. But like all the rest of these seven letters, the introduction doesn't focus us too much on the place itself. But the introduction focuses on the author of the letter, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that reminds us time and again that it's not us or where we are that is preeminent in the life of the church. Yes, these things matter. But the great thing in the life of the church is Jesus Christ. It is him and who he is that is the preeminent the important thing. And our thoughts are always to be first of him, of the glory of his character and person and work. And the great need of all these seven churches, whether they were sunk in apostasy or whether they were pressing on faithfully, was to sink their lives into the glory of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. But Jesus doesn't just introduce himself as the author of the letter in a a casual, general sort of way. Again, as for all of the seven letters, the Lord Jesus introduces himself in a way that specifically applies who he is to the church before him. And so he comes to the church in Philadelphia not simply as the Lord Jesus but as the one who is holy, true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. And in coming with this self-description to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus is saying, first of all, I am divine. Jesus says, I am holy and true. And throughout the book of Revelation, holiness and truth are divine attributes. Revelation 6.10, it is God who is called holy and true. And it's important that this church in Philadelphia was called to remember the divine power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this church was weak in itself and it needed a divine saviour and ruler to be with it. But the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't just choose any divine attributes. He chooses ones again that are specifically relevant for this, this church here. Holiness and truth. Because the church here in Philadelphia was persecuted by the synagogue, by the Jews. There was a Jewish group in Philadelphia that was antagonistic in the extreme to this church. And in saying that he is true, Jesus is saying that I stand in contrast to the false witness of those who are persecuting you, to the Jews who say that I am not the Savior. That is false. I am the one who is true, the true Messiah, the true Savior of Israel. 
And in calling himself holy, Jesus is saying, I am the Holy One of Israel. I am the one that the synagogue should be worshipping, but are not. So Jesus says, I am the true, holy, promised, divine Savior of Israel. But going on from this, Jesus goes on to accent his great sovereignty. He draws from the verses that we read in Isaiah 22, And he says, I am the one who is the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. And thinking back to the time of Isaiah, access to the king was controlled by the steward of the royal household. And the steward of the household would also administer the resources of the kingdom. And in Isaiah 22, the untrustworthy steward of Hezekiah, Shebna, was replaced with a trustworthy steward, Eliakim. And regarding Eliakim, this trustworthy steward, this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were told, I will commit the authority of the king into his hand. He shall be father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He will open, none shall shut. And in pointing us back to Isaiah 22, what the Lord Jesus is saying, the greater than Eliakim is here. Eliakim guarded an earthly kingdom, an access to an earthly king. But now I have come. And I have the keys of the church and the keys of heaven itself in my hands. I, the Lord Jesus, rule faithfully over the true Israel. And I alone have the keys of access to the church. And so what the Lord Jesus was saying is, yes, the Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia, they have thrown you out. They have excommunicated you from the kingdom. But that does not matter because I, the Lord Jesus Christ, am the only one who really has the keys of the kingdom. And I have opened the door for you into the church. And no earthly power, no earthly persecution can take that from you. So, Jesus introduces himself to this church in that beautifully encouraging way. The one who is divine and the one who is sovereign over his church, who alone controls access to the church. But Jesus then goes on and he gives a a threefold diagnosis of the spiritual condition of the church in Philadelphia. As the one who knows the works of this church, the Lord Jesus has three main things to say about them. The first of these is in verse 8, where Jesus tells the Philadelphian church that they are weak but yet strong. 
Jesus says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. And it's interesting that the first thing the Lord Jesus says directly about the church in Philadelphia is, I know that you have but little power. The first thing Jesus says about them is that you are a poor, small church. You aren't mighty. You aren't amongst the powerful of your age. You aren't numerous. You aren't rich. And it's one of the wonderful things about this letter. That the praise, the comfort, the encouragement that the Lord Jesus lavishes on this church is not reduced because it's small, because it's weak, because it's not great in the eyes of the world. And that tells us that God doesn't look for pomp, for outward show, for outward impressiveness and stature in a church. He just looks and takes delight in faithfulness. And that's a great lesson for an age that we live in, so impressed by power and outward success. In our age, we need to come back and remember the weak church of Philadelphia was praised while rich, successful Laodicea was about to be spewed out of the mouth of Jesus. But though this church is weak, It's also strong and mighty in the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus says to this church, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now what does this statement, this promise of the Lord Jesus Christ mean? Well, it has an obvious reference to the believers in Philadelphia themselves. They have an open door into the kingdom of heaven, which no one, not least the Jews, can close. Christ has given them heaven, and it will be theirs as his people. That's how the image of an open door is used in Revelation chapter 4, where John is shown a door standing open in heaven. But as we'll see in a minute... There is an emphasis in this letter on witness, what we might call evangelism. And in many other passages in the New Testament, this idea of an open door is a picture of an opportunity to preach and to share the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16.9, a wide door for effective work has been opened for me. Colossians 4.3, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And so what the Lord Jesus is saying to this weak church in Philadelphia is, yes, I have opened the door into heaven for you, but also I have opened the door for gospel witness 
for gospel usefulness for you in Philadelphia. And though you are weak, and though you are poor, and though your resources are insufficient to testify to me, because I have opened the door for you, no one can stand in the way of your witness for me. And we see here that the church is using that open door that the Lord has given to them. This is what we are told. Yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Flipping that round positively, what does you have not denied my name mean? It means that they have confessed the name of Christ. They are witnessing, they are testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ whatever opposition is coming their way. They are using the door that Jesus has sovereignly opened for them. And that puts a question to all of us. Are we praying for open doors for evangelism like the Apostle Paul did? Are we walking through and witnessing when the Lord Jesus opens a door for us? Are we intentional and purposeful in our witnessing whatever opposition is around us? There's much, I think, to prayerfully ponder in the challenge of this passage. But then the Lord Jesus goes on. He said this church is weak, but it's strong in him. He goes on, verse 9, to talk of how the church is oppressed, yet it will be blessed in seeing their opponents converted. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. The church here in Philadelphia obviously had a very difficult relationship with the Jewish community. And it's easy to picture that the Jewish members of the church being excluded from their families and former friendships as they have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's easy to imagine the the, the bitterness with which the synagogue might react to being told that the Christian church is now the one that worships the true God of Israel and that they have rejected the Messiah sent to save them. And it's so sad to to think of, of that situation. You know, where God's people to whom belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To think of them rejecting their promised Messiah and so degenerating to be nothing more than what we are told here is the synagogue of Satan. But the wonderful thing in the midst of the sadness of that picture is that because Philadelphia is a witnessing church, Because Philadelphia is going through the open doors that the Lord Jesus has given to them. That they will see conversions amongst those who are opposing and persecuting them. This is what Jesus says. I will make them come down and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now it's important to understand that statement correctly. 
Because you can read this and it almost seems as if the members of the synagogue will be constrained against their will, as if they're going to be forced somehow to bow down before the church. But that isn't what this verse is speaking of. In Revelation, the, the act of bowing down and worshipping is, is general, generally voluntary, and that, that's an important sign that this isn't forced, what's going on in this verse. But much more clearly even is that the Lord Jesus is once again drawing images from Isaiah. And in Isaiah 60 and verse 14, there is the promise, the sons of those who afflict shall come bending low to you. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. And and the point in that passage from Isaiah is that this turning and bowing down is one of repentance and faith. And what Isaiah was saying was that the Gentiles who oppose the truth, they will be saved and come and bow down. And what Jesus here does is he turns that passage around and he says to Philadelphia, through your witness, unbelieving Jews who are opposing you, they will be converted. They will come, they will bow, they will worship. And this should give us great hope in our witness. Even those who stand against the gospel to the point of persecuting the church, they can be saved by the power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who holds the keys of the kingdom and who can open hearts that no man can shut. And as a aside, what an interesting way to describe the conversion of those who oppose the church at the end of verse 9. They will learn that I have loved you. You know, when someone is converted from opposing the gospel to embracing it, they learn many things. But what Jesus says here is that a new convert learns that the church is the fellowship of the people that God loves. And that's a good thought for us to have Sunday morning and Sunday evening and midweek as we gather together, that I am coming to be with the people that God loves. So the Lord Jesus says this church is weak, but it's strong in him. It's a church that is oppressed, but which will see conversions. And then third in verse 10, Jesus says that this church is faithful and therefore will be upheld in trials. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. As this church has been faithful to Jesus, as this church has witnessed, despite the opposition round about it, it receives the promise, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now obviously this promise doesn't mean that God's people in Philadelphia or anywhere else, by being faithful 
will avoid difficulties and trials and challenges in this world. From beginning to end, Scripture teaches us, in this world you will have tribulation. But what is promised to us is that we will be upheld and kept and that by God's grace we will persevere through whatever trials and temptations come our way. As Job said in Job 23.10, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. But this leaves us with a question. What is the, the trial mentioned here that sent to test the world from which Philadelphia will be delivered? And the reality, I think, is that there's a specific and a universal reference. There's a reference to some immediate trial that the church in Philadelphia was going to be experiencing and was going to be kept and preserved through. But also there's an ultimate reference to all the trials, all the tests that will come in the world until Christ returns. And what we are all promised is that in these trials which come into the world and which are judgments on the world, all believers will be kept and upheld. Isaiah 43, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. That is the essence of this promise to the church in Philadelphia. Whatever comes, it will not consume you. So the church is weak but strong in Christ. The church is oppressed but witnessing faithfully. And the church will be upheld in whatever trials it goes through. Moving on then to the exhortation to action that Jesus gives to this church. Verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The verse begins with a promise. Christ is coming soon to this church. That isn't principally a promise of the second coming, but it's a promise that Jesus will be with the church in the trial that is about to come upon it. And that's a reminder that Jesus doesn't stand apart from us in our trials, but he is with us in them. But this church has been praised by Jesus. It's now been promised Jesus' presence with it. But then it is called to action. The church is warned against presumption. It's received many promises. It knows that the Lord Jesus thinks so much of it. But still, it must hold fast, lest its crown is taken. And what Jesus is saying is there's no room for complacency in the Christian life. Not for Philadelphia, not for you, and not for me. There's no room for thinking that because the smile of God is upon us that we have arrived and that we can just drift on to glory. Because if we think we stand, 
we have to take heed lest we fall. And we will all know cases of men and women who have lived seemingly exemplary lives, who have endured trials, who have witnessed, who have seen conversions, who have given themselves to Christian service. And then emerged that they have fallen into deep sin and moral failings. And how, how can this be? How can this happen in the lives of those we know who were once going on so well? Because they simply failed to hold fast. By becoming presumptuous, by settling into pride in where we have got to, by ceasing to live in vital union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, by ceasing to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation, by ceasing to do these things, it is so easy to lose the crown. So hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. But having given this exhortation to the church, the Lord Jesus concludes with gracious gospel promises. In verse 12, he promises this church heaven, an eternal fellowship with the triune God. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And so on. To the one who conquers. To the one who holds fast. To the one who overcomes in me. I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. And the temple of my God here is heaven. And to be made a a pillar in this temple. Means to be established and fixed in heaven. The reference is back to Eliakim and Isaiah 22. Eliakim was a peg in the secure place, but he was an imperfect picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you might remember our reading in Isaiah ended. The peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. It will be cut down and fall. But Jesus is saying here, I am the true Eliakim. I will never be cut down and fall. And because of that, all who are in me will never fall. They are pillars, firm and sure, which nothing can shake. And Jesus goes on to say that secured believers in heaven, never shall he go out of it. There is no danger of losing what the Lord Jesus Christ is giving. No interruption to the fellowship with the triune God for all eternity. Perfect peace, security, and blessedness. And again, this was so important to Philadelphia. You know, as a city, it was prone to earthquakes, prone to being reduced to, to rubble and, and ruin. And Jesus is saying, your heavenly hope is so unlike your earthly one. Your heavenly city is so unlike your earthly city. It is secure. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And as a token of this 
unbroken and unbreakable fellowship. Believers are given three names. We are given the name of God himself. I will write on him the name of my God to indicate that God's seal is on us. He claims us fully as his. He marks us out as his family. We can never be cast out of heaven because we can never be cast out of the family of God. Then we are given the name of heaven itself, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. We are marked out as citizens of this new country. Its name is on us. We are heavenly men and women, complete in holiness, joy, and bliss. And if this is not enough, we are given the name of Christ himself and my own new name. The name of Christ as the Lamb of God who has been slain. The name of Christ as the one mediator between God and men. It is Christ's new name as the God-man and that name is made ours. Heirs and co-heirs with Christ, the lamb who was slain but is now in the midst of the throne. His name is ours and we share in the glory of heaven with him. Can you imagine a more glorious set of promises to a church than these, to be immovable pillars in heaven, to be gods for all eternity, to be made heavenly men and women, to be marked out as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. What an incentive to hold fast, lest anyone take our crown. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.